Hello, you, and welcome to You Are Good, a feelings podcast about movies. Today, we are talking about Postcards from the Edge, and we're talking about it with the fabulous Sam Pancake. I am one of your hosts, Alex Steed. I will soon be joined by my wonderful co-host, Sarah Marshall. Postcards from the Edge is a 1990 American comedy drama film directed by Mike Nichols. The screenplay by Carrie Fisher is based on her 1987 semi-autobiographical novel of the same title. The film stars Meryl Streep, Shirley MacLaine, and Dennis Quaid. Sam Pancake is an American actor, improviser, writer, and comedian. We love Sam. Sam has been uh, a listener of the shows for quite some time. I had the great fortune of meeting Sam uh, in L.A. last year. And uh, when we met, <laughs> he was like, we need to do postcards for the edge or on Mother's Day. And uh, we did. Here it is. <laughs> I'm so glad we did. Sam is a delight. We are sending you this episode from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, where uh, we are still on the You're Wrong About tour. If you see us out and about at the tour, please come say hello. I'm at the merch table. I've loved meeting each and every one of you. It has been so fun to take the show on the road and to meet y'all at the table. It's been truly lovely. So please come up and say hello. If you're seeing You're Wrong About on tour, you Are Good, a feelings podcast about movies, is made possible with your support. Thanks to everyone who supports us on Patreon or Apple Podcast subscriptions. In exchange for that support, you get bonus episodes. We have a Sex in the City Season 2 bonus episode out right now. And uh, later on this month, I believe our bonus episode will probably be in some way, shape, or form about Succession. Uh, uh, we'll find out. But there's one coming out this month, too. <laughs> But truly, thank you so much for supporting the show. It makes the whole thing possible. Uh, it gives us creative folks jobs, and we really appreciate that. Thank you, thank you, thank you. You can find You Are Good on Twitter and Instagram. Maybe soon you'll find us on Blue Sky. That one seems like it might be catching on. Who knows? You can find me on Blue Sky, Alex Steed. Uh, who knows? Hopefully something that is not Elon's $44 billion truth social alternative comes about uh maybe we'll listen to this episode uh, in six months from now and go haha it's so funny that he was suggesting that now dead platform who knows the ground is shifting underneath us isn't it anyway let us know how you're doing reach out however you can wherever we are now on social media how are you doing by the way how is your life how is your world what books have you read what movies have you seen how's it going out there don't forget that you, my friend, are good. Let's talk about postcards from the edge with Sam Pancake. Hello, Sarah Marshall. Hello, Alex Steed. How do you do today on this fine Brooklyn day? I'm having a Mike's hard black cherry oh wow which tastes exactly like a melted otter pop have you been you've been sucked into the mike's universe by jamie loftus is that what has happened i have yeah yeah her one of her many purposes on this planet is to remind people that mike's hard lemonade has many things to contribute to our lives and one of them is that if you do a show and you have some in the green room then you just grab one on your way out and then it's a it's a nutritious lunch Yep, Sarah's in the Mike's Brigade. <laughs> yeah, it was bound to happen. It is, it's, here we are. Sarah Marshall, mm -hmm. we are talking today about what film 
And what is your relationship with this movie? We're talking about Postcards from the Egg, which is a movie that I've seen one time previously when I was about 20, I think, and therefore remember pretty well. And I feel like movies that I saw kind of in college age or younger are like fixed pretty well in my memory and anything after that, it just kind of slides right off. But yes, it's a movie about mothers and daughters in show business, which is like on the one hand, very far from my life because my mom is the least show business person in the world. And on the other hand, very close to it because I do, in fact, have a mother. So there is overlap. (laughs) And you do have a you do have a foot in show business. Show business, as they call it. Yeah. Show business. Exactly. As it is called. I yeah, I hadn't seen this movie in a long time time and I think the the last time I tried to watch it I was I'm not gonna say it was too young but I think I, I watched it as like a very young adult and I was like this is mm-hmm. I, I didn't understand the humor and then I watched it recently and I'd forgotten that this is a Mike Nichols movie and I saw all of the humor and all of the heart in a really fascinating way that I did not access when I think I was like 19 years old just has that Mike Nichols mouth feel it does have a Mike Nichols mouthfeel. Absolutely, totally, beautifully put. And we are, we are, uh, we have that feel in our mouths because of our guest, uh, Sam Pancake. Sam, <laughs> hello, darling. Hello, hello, dear. Am I late for the family thing? <laughs> what brings you here, and what brings you here with this movie, Sam? What brings me here is myself begging, throwing, hurling myself at y'all to let me do this movie. Like a sparrow <laughs> against the window pane. Yes, exactly. <laughs> like an awkward seagull who's lost its flock. <laughs> I love this movie very much. This is, this is I, I first saw it in 1990 here in Los Angeles in Hollywood, California. I've heard of it. Yes, yes. It's got a <laughs> reputation. Um And I had been in L.A. trying to start getting work as an actor since late 87. And it hit me at just the right time where I still thought Hollywood and showbiz was nothing. Even the terrible parts, even the heartbreak was Mm -hmm. glamorous and fulfilling Mm -hmm. and, and, and like, you know, aspirational and exalted. I was this little kid from West Virginia moved out here knowing one person just like my you know suitcase full of dreams and heartbreak and only in the future and then i kind of took this movie on weirdly is my personality to a degree just because of all the sparkle and flash and the showbiz and the, the wigs on the wigs off and this was even before i became a steadily working actor and even before i ended up in detox and rehab so it just mm-hmm. kind of was a a weird self-fulfilling prophecy. And the movie has the movie has drag in it too, which is perfect. Uh yes. Whispering pines <laughs> call out to me. Oh, the dress was so uncomfortable to wear. I have it memorized. And if this is the time to say this, I not only in the summer of 2020 did about six scenes, filmed them here in my in my little house by myself in drag of Meryl and Shirley and my friend edited back and forth and Uncle Marty, the agent, I did that scene and they're all on my Instagram or YouTube. And then in last year, I did a stage show. I'm a crazy person. Crazy. (laughs) Called Pancakes from the Edge, of course, about what the movie meant to me with the videos and characters inspired by it. And then a heartwarming story at the end about Rod and Mark. Mm -hmm. My friends who I saw with who are now no longer with, who... Rod died of AIDS in 95 and Mark Mm. died of AIDS in 2017. So it has emotional resonance. And I just, it just lives deeply and richly inside me. Beautiful. 
Yeah, you. I, I I had met you. We've been in touch because of the show, but I'd met you in L.A. for lunch a handful of months ago, and you made such a <laughs> impassioned plea. <laughs> <laughs> this movie that I was like, it's Mother's Day's coming up. It's we're getting into Mother's Day Ooh, season. Mother's Day. We're also doing Joy Luck Club. Oh my! See, oh, I didn't even think about this. Wow, yeah. we're really reaming people. Exactly. <laughs> so, Sarah, do you want to take us on a little tour of the edge? Yes. Although I feel I'm in the presence of an edge master, of an edge lord, if you will. Edge lord. <laughs> But I'll, I'll just, you know, I'll just do like a brief run through and then we will get into all the those nooks and crannies that we love so much. Beautiful. But we open with Meryl Streep going through customs in a sort of unnamed romancing the stone-esque Latin American country in a film within a film where we then cut when she flubs a line and director Gene Hackman balls her out for doing coke on set and he yells at her and then she does what I think is a very normal response to being yelled at at work which is uh, going home with Dennis Quaid and overdosing Mm -hmm. and then he drops her off at the hospital and they're like where can we call you and he's like uh I'll call you (laughs) I have a delivery (laughs) disappears as mysteriously as he arrived Meryl goes into rehab she is helped by uh, CCH Pounder, and then I hardly knew her. And then <laughs> we see her kind of having gone through the initial stages in a group meeting that is for families, which I do like. I understand that screenwriting is an art, but I love that they appeared to have this entire meeting and then introduce her at the very end, which is, is funny to me. <laughs> and then her mother, played by Shirley MacLaine, shows up in. I don't know, giving Ginger and Casino with that white fur coat of hers. And so her showbiz mommy shows up. Basically, we kind of see the dynamic between them. She brings her cookies, which is nice. And then is like, I don't think you should take this part. And here's why. And kind of the meat of the movie is that Meryl Streep is released into her mother's care because it's the only way she's insurable to work on the next movie that she has to to go on. Which just imagine, like um, like everyone at home, imagine in order to work, you're released into your parents' care. It's not great. <laughs> well, she can't be with her father. He's worse than she is. Not that you're bad, dear. <laughs> it's also like I was watching this and I, and of course, these are both Mike Nichols movies, but I was like, I love how both Nora Ephron and Carrie Fisher were able to use Meryl Streep as an avatar for their like highly autobiographical novels to kind of just represent their interiority, I guess. And if you're trying to communicate something that the world is not set up to understand, then sometimes in the 80s, you get to have Meryl Streep do it and Mike Nichols direct it. (laughs) Into very different hairstyles, yes. (laughs) So yes, she's released into her mother's custody. They're on a collision course for wackiness. And we're just seeing the dynamic between mother and daughter. And this is, of course, like, I don't think that we're... I don't think that Carrie Fisher was one of those people who was like, of course, my work isn't autobiographical. I just imagined a completely different woman in rehab who's the daughter of a completely different Hollywood legend who's not Debbie Reynolds. And so they're <laughs> they're leaving. And Meryl's I can't remember anyone's names, but Meryl's mom is, of course, stopped by two of her fans 
who are just like Doris Mann. Yes, yes. Yeah, and and who are just you know enchanted with her because she's enchanting. And if you grew up seeing someone on a screen, then you it's easy for you to be enchanted by them because she's not your mother. And you can see Meryl in the background just like growing smaller and smaller and smaller because of that cookie she ate in an Alice in Wonderland kind of way. And you're just like, oh, yeah, this is like the whole relationship where like you can focus on the difficult relationship with your child or you can be like a fan, a shiny thing, someone who will sing my song to me. (laughs) You know how the queens love me. (laughs) It's my favorite line in the whole movie. (laughs) I did. This sounds corny now, but I did feel seen back in 1990 when she said that because there was little acknowledgement of like, you know, little public acknowledgement of gay men love these divas and their furs and wigs and sparkle sparkle. Yes. Yeah. So she's released into her mother's custody. She's working on this movie, which just like I love everything about how they depict this movie being filmed. She's iconically pretending to be hanging off the side of a building while just kind of like lying flat because it's horizontal and it's just like, ugh, just like throwing up her hands that she's holding on for dear life with. She's being directed by Simon Callow, who's just giving yes. asshole the way he always does in movies. We saw him recently in Amadeus. Oh, right. Yes. Kind of doing the same role, but 200 years apart. <laughs> Smarmy charmy. Yes. Like, well, you were wonderful in a public domain. No, no. You're wonderful in a night full of shoes. There's these other movie titles that she's in, like a night full of shoes. <laughs> What did you What did you do in that? Well, I rehearsed. Anyway, proceed. Oh, and the movie they're making is called L.A. Beat, which is so. Oh my god. Nineteen ninety. Mm. And you're just like you're trying to piece it together in your head. You're like she's tied up to a cactus with Michael Nori at one point. Like where is this going? Michael Antkeen. Michael Antkeen. Oh my god, I fucked up my Michaels. <laughs> it's fine. Yeah, I like movies like this a lot. Like movie like filmmakers making movies about films being made where they feel no compulsion to set give you context or over explain like how we got to this scene like we're just in this scene being shot and they're like if you know how this works that's great and if you don't it's gonna you're just gonna have to figure it out i really love that and there will be life snakes there are life snakes (laughs) which they're like what which i can vouch for being very very much the thing very disorganized and very a lot of surprises on sets yeah lots of times and they're just like, oh, by the way, there will be live snakes. We, I mean, you're <laughs> yes. fine with that, right? I mean, why wouldn't you be? Anyway, action. And like, like, right. And I feel like it's, you know, without ever really, this movie never makes this argument explicitly, but it just kind of shows you like, you know, show business is like, and movies specifically are this like glitzy, glamorous thing that the whole nation dreams of. But like, really, at the end of the day, it's a job that you show up for and overhear people gossiping about your body. Yeah. Yeah. Just like if you work at Kmart. <laughs> yes, yes. And so they're making this movie, and then she has a second date with Dennis Quaid, who also the hair, I don't know what's going on with his hair in this. It's not a good look for him, but then neither is anything else he does in this. And so he takes her out to his ranch in Malibu, which is a red flag, because Ronald Reagan also once had a ranch in Malibu. Oof, oof, yeah. Or at least Malibu Creek State Park. Which I know because I've been there, because I'm not in L.A. that much, but when I am, I'm sure to do Reagan tourism. <laughs> the last time Sarah was in L.A., I just got a bunch of photos of her in Reagan tour. 
Yeah. Wow. Did you go to the li- I've never even been to that library. I, I, I won't do it. I haven't been to the library yet. I do really want to okay. go. And like to be clear, I'm not a fan of Ronald Reagan, but I am yes. fascinated by him. Sure. Because I am also a people pleaser. And Ronald Reagan is just the end game of all that. And it's good to just look into the abyss. You know, you look into the abyss and the abyss looks back at you and says, well, <laughs> if you could go to Freddy Krueger's house, wouldn't you like <laughs> um, also at a certain Alex, did you notice that like at a certain point when they're on set, they walk past a Freddy? Yes, I did. Oh, I yeah. did. Yeah, this is this was the, the last big year of Freddy everywhere. <laughs> Yeah, good old Freddie. Oh, I forgot about that. And so she goes on a date with Dennis Quaid, who does, I don't know, I, I just turned 35 about 20 minutes ago, and I feel like... <gasps> Congratulations. Thank you. I mean, it's exciting. I'm, I've entered the age of, of being told I look good for my age, and, <laughs> and that's fine. Long may it rain, darling. Long may it rain. <laughs> and like one thing I feel good about is that I'm finally able to recognize that when you have gone out with a man two times and he's like, I love you, you should be like, goodbye. <laughs> yeah, he comes on strong real fast. You smell like the future. Yeah. yeah. And he's like, I love you. You smell like Catalina. I'm so enchanted <laughs> yes. by you. She's like, you're crazy. And he's like, whatever you know and just and she just gives into it because when you're really at any time but also i think if you're recently sober to quote roxy music love is the drug right (laughs) and i need to score yeah and so she scores and then she finds out that one of the other actresses in the movie annette benning first movie role yep is it really yes oh she looks so good yeah yeah she's amazing in this role and that 1990 prostitute hooker uh, i'm doing air quotes hooker yeah. outfit which doesn't make sense in any context even in 1990 <laughs> anyway continue it's riveting and to show that she's a sexual person, she's chewing on a swizzle stick the whole time. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> and they're like, Meryl's the most beautiful woman on the planet. How do we show her feeling like sexually outmatched by someone? And they're like, swizzle stick. Well, and also bulky police uniform versus, you know, baby doll, goo goo gaga camisole yeah. and fishnets on a winter New York street on a studio lot. She yeah. is full goo goo gaga. I love it. Yeah, the whole, all the movie set <laughs> stuff reminds me of the Universal Studios tour, which I went on recently with our friends Chelsea Weber Smith and Miranda Zickler, and which I loved so much. And just like the sort of, I don't know, there's there's a whole motif running through it, obviously, of like, how do you know how to live your life when so much of it is smoke and mirrors and just like when a house gets rolled away that you've just walked by? As just quite as waving, yeah. Yeah, it's almost, it's like, ooh, in retrospect, there's a subtext happening there. Like mm-hmm. he represents home and safety, but it's all just like a hollow shell with a stupid leather jacket on it. But yeah, so she finds out that like the day that he proclaimed his love for her, Dennis Quaid had also made it with Annette Benning that afternoon. And Annette Benning. I love her character because she's just like, yeah, you know, players only love you when they're playing, essentially. <laughs> just like, have fun. I did it for the Endolphin Rush. <laughs> the Endolphin Rush. I love it so much. The names of this are so funny to me, too, because her name is Evelyn Ames, which to me is like a, a, a 30s movie character actress. Yeah. But like Her name should be like Tandy Danielle or something anyway. <laughs> 
Yeah. And so Meryl finds out what's going on. She confronts Dennis Quaid. He says, you were more fun when you were loaded. And so she shoots her fake prop gun at him, (laughs) which luckily they had a good armorer on set. So nobody dies. Yeah, we've had a couple incidents since to remind that even that is not a great idea. Yeah. Don't fire blanks at people, even if they're Dennis Quaid. Yeah. I mean, maybe if it's Dennis Quaid, but no one else. Even if, as we find out later, like Dennis Quaid's both having sex with her when we assume she was blacked out and on the way to an overdose and mm-hmm. then lying about it and mm-hmm. then only using it later to make her feel bad. Like I would shoot him with a real gun. God. Yeah, I know. And this is also we talked about Working Girl recently. So these are two Mike Nichols movies close together that have the guy being like, being given a passed out woman to take care of and then yeah. being graded on that, which is like, I, it was such a trope that I grew up with and really didn't unpack until adulthood. How same. Yeah. Same fucked up. It is to, to like that, to show us that a guy is good. They're like, you know, he didn't sexually assault our main character. And it's like, I don't think that proves he's a good guy. It just proves he's not a horrible guy. Like give me more. <laughs> Yeah, and it's and it's like to take away a, a you know a heroine's power as well, and I think it it works better in this movie because it's portrayed as the absolutely sinister thing that it is. And also, kind of offhand, he's like, "But you said we didn't do anything." Oh, I lied. And that's oh god, it's so gross, so gross. It is so gross. But your Dennis Quaid impression just there was it took me there. Like I feel like yeah. you really, you if know, we wanted to do the entire movie of me doing every character, which again I did a lot of those scenes already because I'm so possessed by this movie I, I could do it i should do it. it's a good movie to be possessed by yeah and then what happens immediately after that i feel like from here we go fairly straight into low point and i missed the party there was a party importantly a welcome home party where from rehab at, well, welcome home from rehab party where we also meet her grandma who is the actress name is it may wicks Mary Wicks. Mary Wicks. Who's been working since the 30s. And that was his, yeah. And who I know as Aunt March from Little Women. Yes. Which was very pleasing to me because Meryl Streep played Aunt March in the new Little Women. So we had the two Aunt Marches together. Oh my God, that's great. And she's in Sister Act. Yeah. Mm. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. And Meryl performs at her party and sings You Don't Know Me by Ray Charles. Um, I don't know if that's the title of the song, but the, you, you know is. what I mean. Hooray. And that's such a, it never occurred to me before, but like she's singing that song to her mother. Who, who's forcing her to sing it. Who's forcing her to sing it. And then, and I identify with this so much and I like to think I would have more restraint in the moment, but who knows? Everyone's like, no, you sing a song. And Shirley McLean's oh like, God. oh, no. No. Okay, D flat. <laughs> yeah, it's so good. Yeah. And this is when get drugs even harder to not do for Meryl. Like this yes. is when <laughs> this is when not doing drugs and drinking a lot very understandably becomes very difficult to abstain from. <laughs> yeah. Yes, and, and Shirley flashes her red panties at us too. I mean oh if you God. got it, flaunt it. But yes. Sure. And and so Okay, so we have the Dennis Quaid reveal, and is that when she comes home and has the showdown with her yes. mother? Yeah. Yes. yes. We also learn her business manager has run off with yes. all of her money. Money? Oh, my God. I have something inevitable to tell you. <laughs> Marty Wiener, the man you insisted on going with, oh the man God. I begged you not to work with. Oh, my God. Oh and my the vodka God. in the smoothie. Yeah. 
And her mom is a social drinker. She doesn't have a drinking problem, which is why she's putting vodka in her smoothie and pouring with yeah, the, the restraint of Sandra Lee. <laughs> yeah, yeah. She socially drinks at least 10 to 12 ounces of vodka in every smoothie. Yeah. <laughs> oh, it's brutal. And so Meryl takes off. Well, first they have the big confrontation on the oh, stairs. Yeah. You can't leave that. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Tell, do, you do that. Take us home. I can literally say, like, go ahead and say it. You think I'm an alcoholic. Okay, I think you're an alcoholic. Well, maybe I was an alcoholic when you were a teenager, but that was right when my marriage fails and I lost all my money. That's when I started taking acid. I Anyway, it leads to the whole, like, remember my 17th birthday when you lifted your skirt in front of everyone at that party? I didn't lift my skirt at twelve. Yeah. Up. And you weren't wearing any underwear. Well... Yeah, Meryl's like, you started yeah. giving me sleeping pills when I was nine years old. And she's oh, yeah. like, they were over the counter. They were perfectly safe. And you're like, oh, God. <laughs> uh, yeah. And also, like, I think a lot of old timey parents were probably giving their children sleeping pills. That doesn't make it excusable. It just means that, like, parenting has historically been, like, kind of a crime uh, for most of it. <laughs> yep. If parents today are feeling like, why is this so hard? Has it always been this hard? The answer is no. You're trying to do it ethically without sleeping pills, and that makes it more difficult for you. But, you know, it is worth it. Yeah, you're trying to, like, like two things that just change the dynamic in an exhausting way that you're describing is, one, not giving your kids sleeping pills, and two, <laughs> trying to answer their questions. Like, yeah. until not long ago, <laughs> it was almost universal. Yeah, until 1997. <laughs> yeah, yes. It was just universal that if your kid asked a question, you'd be like, I don't fucking know leave me alone like yeah, and so yeah. those two things make it exhausting in a way that i feel like it was not before <laughs> oh and also we have to say she um right when she gets home from because she's so upset about dennis quaid suzanne yeah. meryl streep steals a uh, pills that we're assuming valium or something mm, from her mother's right. dr- the cabinet and she shoves them in her pocket and then after the big staircase uh you know confrontation she's like where are you going i'm going to record an album i'm going to have some fibroid tumors removed <laughs> i'm going to fucking loop and then she swallows him with what's left of the drugs of her diet coke and her vintage mustang which was the cool car of 1990 and she drives off and then she um pulls over and throws them up because she's about to relapse and then she thinks better of it mm. Yeah, I think she goes off and and loops her dialogue in the movie she was making at the start of this movie. And Gene Hackman is there and he's nice to her. His niceness is fascinating this entire movie where it's always Mm -hmm. it's like as nice as you imagine Gene Hackman ever being, which is like terrifying could always turn into scary being yelled at or saying some like existentially terrifying thing but then is also just like i just want you to live Mm -hmm. your life you know like i love the complicated nature of the gene hackman character in this movie yeah me too yeah i i don't think that they should work together again but you know (laughs) i'm not in charge of her life and so there's some hope there and then she gets out and then learns that her mother took off after her and drove into a tree because she had just had her smoothie socially and was therefore drunk. She drinks like an Irish person. (laughs) And so she goes to see her in the hospital. And I, you know what I think? Here's what I think. This is the Return of the Jedi ending because you have to see your big scary parent without their wig on and just see them all like scraggly and bald and Mm. realize that they're just a sad little baby chick underneath all of the armor. 
Yeah. And without their eyebrows, and it's in her will. She does not go into the ground without them. Yeah, I love that. Yeah, and, Me she, too. and she sees her mom kind of, you know, without her protection and her armor. And her mother says, you know, the truth is that I'm jealous and sad that it's your turn and that my turn is almost over. And there's also when she and Gene Hackman are talking before Gene Hackman says something I identify with horrifyingly much which is you know so many people want nothing more than to have your life and she says i know but i can't feel my life right right i can see it but i can't feel it yeah and i don't i don't feel that as much now but like it's been a struggle to feel my life and to feel the good things in my life and i think that that's Mm -hmm. something that's true for a lot of us where like you externally you know that like what you have should theoretically help you with these problems or should be the answer but it's like the inability to receive is still there. Yeah. For me, it's the the amount of anxiety that goes along with all the good and all the supposed success or whatever other people see it as. But like for, for yourself, for me, it's like, yes, but you don't have the dark underbelly of everything else. It's in my brain. Right. Pulling me down all the time. Yeah. The, or like the duck legs swimming underneath the smooth surface. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And I mean, that's kind of. That's our grand conclusion, really. And then we get a reappearance by Richard Dreyfus, who's the doctor who pumped her stomach initially and who wants to go out with her, which is also the heartburn ending where you like meet someone who seems more suitable. But you're like, mm, not yet. Yeah. <laughs> not, the suitable men as a concept are on the horizon, but like that's not the point right now. And then she goes and works on a new movie and she sings. And she's, I think... You know, I we're to understand that like this is not a movie showing someone recovering. It's a movie showing someone at the beginning of the journey of recovery, and uh, and that's postcards from the edge. Well done, yay! <laughs> Beautifully done. And we get we get along the way th- at least three amazing cameo. We get so many amazing cameos. Yeah, but yeah. We get a Rob Reiner cameo. Thank God. Mm-hmm. Yep. We get an. It, it, I don't think this would have been a cameo at the time. This just would have been a small role. But we get an Oliver Platt role, which was thank God <laughs> yes. for that because Oliver Platt always. Who had just been in Working Girl? He's the one with the tiny little dick. And then we get Anthony Heald or Anthony Held. Yeah. Anthony Heald, my mom's crush. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The costumer, Dan- the great Dana oh, Ivy. Yes. Everything. Yeah. Robin Bartlett as Aretha, her roommate. I love Robin Bartlett in anything she does. I wish there was more Robin Bartlett in the world. I love the Aretha character in this, where it's like no backstory, just sardonic <laughs> uh, Aretha. And that's great. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think I'll go weave a basket or something. Oh, my God. Sam, why did this land so hard with you? Like, why was this a thing that you felt you needed to and could occupy the moment it came out? I don't still fully understand it, which I've realized is fine. And it's just one of those things in my life. I don't know if it's past life stuff. My relationship with my mother, who was, you know, a a mother and a homemaker and an art teacher in West Virginia, like a very, a very polite Southern Belle type. And the thing that did resonate deeply with me was like, our relationship is fraught and she was always very the one line that was true of my family and that Suzanne says in the movie when Doris is going out after you know she's like oh where's my has her scarf on after Suzanne does her makeup and she goes to greet the press in her fur we're 
made more for public than for private. Mm-hmm. And my family felt like that because it was very like this showy, charming, mm-hmm. like polite Southern family. Hi, y'all. How you doing? Mm-hmm. You know, very, you know, we're going to go sit and visit, you know. And then behind closed doors, there was a lot of others, a lot of not not it wasn't horrible, abu- mm-hmm. abusive stuff. It was just very cold, emotionally distant. Angry yeah. wasp, the, the 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 other side of wasp, you know. Yeah, not that interested in the six children they had, and either of my parents. So, and uh, yeah, and I still don't know. And I, I, I it's sometime I think about it. Like I, I did a whole ding dang show about it, but how I did end up, and my drinking and drug problem didn't really exacerbate to the dangerous degree until the late 90s early 2000s and I still hung in there so I was it was way before like I said way before I ended in detox and rehab Mm -hmm. and um it was just strange it it was back when I still glamorized drug use I'll be honest I didn't in 1990 when I saw this I was like I just want the life because not only did I want to move here to be an actor and even though I knew I was gay and that would be hard I was like I'm gonna do it Mm -hmm. but I also wanted to meet famous people and hear the stories and be on set and I didn't care if it was you know, not quote unquote fun all the time. I just wanted to be in the mm-hmm. mix and in the life. And uh, and when I Rod was one of the first people I knew who was connected to that life, like Debbie Reynolds, you know, Carrie Fisher, because I wasn't a Star Wars person, but I always uh, treasured Carrie Fisher straight from Shampoo when she plays Lee Grant's daughter. Mm, oh Warren God. Beatty seduces yes. her, and she's l- literally like fifteen, and she says. To Warren Beatty, her character says, I am nothing like my mother, which is Carrie could have written that. I still don't completely understand it. And I think it will be just one of my life journeys to unpuzzle and enjoy. Yeah. And I'm curious about because I it's so I grew up as so many as so many kids do, knowing Carrie Fisher from Star Wars. And I remember watching with my parents and when she kind of turns up in the first movie, them being, you know, not really explaining who the other people were, but being like, oh, that's Carrie Fisher. And it was just like, yes, the adult world values Carrie Fisher literacy. Like this is you pick up on this as a child and that I love her, but I know that like my love is but a drop of water compared to the ocean of love that so many people have for Carrie Fisher (laughs) and that she has been, you know, such an icon for people. And I wonder about having been there at the time, like what the response to this movie was. And I know that, you know, of course this is based on a book that had been out, but you know, as someone who spends a lot of time thinking and talking about women who uh, have been absolutely pilloried and have their lives destroyed or their careers taken from them by the media and by the public for stepping out of line in a way that hurt nobody but themselves. Like the fact that she was able to, take her life and to make it into something that both communicated the reality of what she was going through and also helped people to then go on that same journey and and still is helping people to do that is I don't know I feel like maybe we take that for granted but like it's incredible especially given the time in which she did it yeah and as she says in in one of her other books or shows or she said many times like Take your broken heart and turn it into art, mm-hmm. which is one of my mottos now. And she, the book, mm-hmm. the the book in the nineties is from the eighties is very different. There's a lot of mm-hmm. like cocaine rants, and and the mother is not a very big figure. And I just mm-hmm. rewatched a bunch of interviews from 1990 when the three of them were doing press stuff. Mm-hmm. And Carrie talks about how initially it was supposed to be a 
um, she was writing it as a movie for Richard Dreyfus to play the main cocaine character because hmm. Mr. Dreyfus had a, had a coke problem. Mm-hmm. Perfect. Yeah. Yeah. And so I guess that's why. And then she talks about the various iterations and working with Mike Nichols and how the people that God, she's so charming and adorable. You got to watch these interviews. And she just it slowly the scenes with the mother resonated strongly and then she was like had to make it more about mm. the mother but she goes overboard in this interview talking about how like i never fight with my mother my mother's not an alcoholic but then later i have the dvd with her commentary which is a treasure trove friends carrie gives all the commentary and she was basically in that she's like yeah it's it's a, it's my mom yeah <laughs> it's it's pretty much my mom <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I like how it landed. I'm, I'm, I have not read the original book, so I don't, I don't know how much, it, how different it is, but I like that it landed in the place where it landed because Sarah, you saying that it's the return of the Jedi ending really kind of put it into perspective because it's like, you know, like what if, what if Darth, Darth Vader just like freely admitted that he was sad that his, his children were getting their time in the spotlight. And it was like, maybe time for him to step back. And and that would be great. Obviously it's like a very sort of like father issue to not be able to deal with that. But this feels like a fantasy in that we actually have her, acknowledge that which is a thing that like if you have parents with narcissistic tendencies that's not always a luxury you're ever given (laughs) yeah my my father so So if like if darth had said like it's important to me that one of us (laughs) enjoys their youth (laughs) to luke luke or (laughs) lay wouldn't things be so much better (laughs) yes I came this close to getting a little bit of that from my father on his what we thought was his deathbed. And we all rushed back with it. He lived five more years. But I Ugh. I took it when I could get it because yeah. he was had narcissistic personality disorder and was uh, a, mi- a minister, you know, of course. So, yeah, <sighs> my dad, as he was, you know, first having false alarms about dying and then actually really getting down to the business of doing that, I was just like waiting waiting for my moment, waiting for the moment when I could take his helmet off and he just like died with his helmet on. And I feel like, mm. I don't know. I just feel like I I did not, in a way that feels a little bit childish now, but which I'm not going to judge myself about or anybody else. Like I really believed probably from seeing too many movies that like when you really know that like your time is up, you are forced to take your helmet off. And it turns out you can just die with your helmet on. And also I want to share that when I was a little kid watching Return of the Jedi, I thought (laughs) that Darth Vader had a harmonica on under there. And that's what that breathing device (laughs) was. (laughs) Seriously, fair enough. Valid. They don't explain it. (laughs) They don't. That's fair. He's just a one-man band. He likes Neil Young. That's totally Sometimes he's just singing Transformer Man under there. (laughs) Oh, my God. Yeah, to that point, that is where this feels like a fantasy, because like I think a lot of people who relate to this family dynamic as it's portrayed between mother and daughter or, or whatever parent and whatever child, I might be projecting a little bit, but I think it's more likely than not that those people would watch this movie and go like, I didn't really get very close to what Shirley MacLaine is able to offer Meryl Streep in this dynamic where she's able to very clearly 
you know, like, and especially moments where like you drunkenly crash your car into a tree, like usually in my experience with uh, substance issues, that's when you dig in. Yeah. Like that's when you get that's if you're in the trenches, you're like, True. I wonder how much further into the trench I can get yeah. as a means of like not acknowledging where we're at. Because if I acknowledge it, I can't be in the trench anymore. And that's where I'm feeling my best. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that was me. I can you say a lot about that. This isn't a trench. It's a summer home. It's a summer. <laughs> it's a it's a 12 month a year home. Yeah, <laughs> totally. Totally. So it is nice to like be able to visualize what it would be like. But then the the issue that results is, you know, people find themselves in your position, Sarah, where you see enough movies like this and you expect, you know, these movies aren't presented like a fantasy. They're presented, you know, kind of like in a pseudo reality. So you kind of expect the same. And then you're like, is he just all helmet? Like, is there a head head in harmonica under there? Mm. Yeah. And I feel like I've like in my relationship with my mom, like I have had those wig off moments with her. Mm. And then the issue and it's not an issue. It's just a fact that like you I think that you have those moments and they help you and they help you to feel seen. And then the moment passes and like you have to get back to doing the work because like they're not going to go back and reparent you and make you something that you want it to be like you then have to go and do it which is so fucking annoying (laughs) it is and i I wish i'd learned about parenting myself earlier in my life i really i never heard that term until i was listening to like mark maron wtf at one point and then i've tried to have these moments with my mother who's still alive and i ah i mean we've come really close but i don't know there are six six of us there's six kids and i don't know that she is i hope she never hears she'll never hear this I just don't know how capable she is. And I forgive and love because she's doing the best she can with the parents she had who were marvelous to me, but she, um, might mean my grandparents, but I don't know. I've, uh, I'm glad to have gotten the tiny bit I got from my father, which he didn't say, I love you. He just said, thank you for loving me, (laughs) which bursts into tears. Yeah. And I was singing to him because he like, he was in this hospital and he likes when, I would and don't even have a great voice, but sing like 4-H camp songs or hymns because he was a minister and and I was holding his hand and singing and he said that and it was it was pretty spectacular. Mm. I, I you know it, it's pinned with a little diamond to my heart. Mm. I try to think of it more often than when I think of all the other stuff, you know. But you do the best you can. And the father is quite absent in this movie. I mean, we can talk about that later, but get we kind of get get it from the the gene hackman character is like the closest to an active father that we have in the movie and he says he says a version of what i just looked it up he says a version of kind of like what you said sarah where it's right after the her talking about how she can't feel her life and he says i don't know your mother but i'll tell you something she did it to you and her mother did it to her and back and back all the way to eve and at some point you just have to say fuck it i'll start with me and you know this whole idea that like at some point you have to acknowledge it's not going to change as much as you ultimately want it to change and there requires like some intervention on your own to accept some of like what is and what is not going to happen, yeah. you know, which is what yeah. we get from, from Suzanne to a point where, you know, she's wise enough by the end of this movie to be presented with a eager and willing Richard Dreyfus ready to go on a date. And she knows enough to be like, yeah, it's probably not going to be a good idea right now. It's like mm-hmm. the first adult decision. Not adult. That's not that's not fair. It's the first like embodied decision she makes in the whole movie. Yeah, it's true. 
In a lot of the interviews, Carrie Fisher was also saying that, like, because they were asking about working with Meryl, and she's like, Meryl is a woman, but Suzanne Vale is still a girl. And it was mm. interesting to see Meryl go yeah. into, like, a girl totally. mode. Totally. Yeah. I, um, can I, can I, I, this is me, this is my brain jumping around. Do you want to hear a Hollywood story yes. about Shirley and Richard? Sure. I had this, um, I didn't think of putting this together that they were, at the time that they were both in this. I don't know why. One time I got asked to be a part of a table read for a movie that in, didn't end up getting made about a, a rap artist. This is a true story. A rap artist in like Queens or something. He was in an accident and he has to go to a convalescent home to recover from this, this car accident. And they wrote, my friend, this writer, um, who I don't know if he wants to be named, so I won't. He wrote the movie version for Shirley. Shirley, um, I've had a few run-ins with, but Shirley MacLaine was the old lady and Betty White played her best friend in this table read. And uh, Damon Wayans was the rapper and Eddie Griffin was his best friend. So I was at this table read with those four and Tanya Pinkins and Broadway's own four-time Tony nominee, Kevin Chamberlain. And Richard Dreyfuss was supposed to come to play, I think a doctor or something. And we sat at Mike Metavoy's office at TriStar Pictures and I was just very nervous to be there with all these people. So we had to wait a half an hour sitting there in the office, so like seven or eight of us, this one Worlds Collide group, waiting for Richard Dreyfus to show up. We waited and waited, and Shirley gets very impatient because Shirley gets right to the point, and Shirley does not fuck around, and Shirley does not like small talk. And watching Shirley MacLaine and Betty White interact, and Betty White's always kind of in her, like, I'm the sweet grandma mode, <laughs> which I guess is really her. Finally, Richard came. No apologies. A half an hour late, and Shirley laid into him. Not super hard, not like behind closed doors hard, <laughs> mm -hmm. but she made her feelings known, and it was deeply satisfying. <laughs> Shirley is an April 24th Taurus, I just yeah. want to point out. Oh. That's some uh, ball-busting energy, which I appreciate. <laughs> yes, yeah. That's right. She She's a ball-buster in, in, in the best way. Mm -hmm. yes. Balls need to be busted, you know? They sure do. They do. She's doing double time. When I met her the first time, I said to her, I was so terrified to meet you. I was brought to her at the silent auction portion of like a glad dinner or something. Me and Wendy McClendon-Covey, who were doing a show together at the time, and we had been warned that Shirley doesn't like small talk. And I said, well, I was so terrified to meet you because I was nervous. And she was like, why? Why are you terrified to meet me? Let's talk about that. What, what, what terrifies you about me? Like, well, this is it. Wow. <laughs> this is it, Shirley. This is the reason. Can I say the the one thing I we, we talked about it in passing and you you had spoken to just sort of like the general interest in an in, in adult adoration for Carrie Fisher that was happening in your childhood. But the thing I want to mention, it's so it's it's just like so on the nose and so evident. But you know, she lived with mental illness and issues relating to addiction. She she died as a result of both of those things. In addition to that, I think the thing that I most appreciate about her, and I think that so many people appreciate about her, whether or not they can put their finger on it, is that she just appeared to have such an amazing commitment to refusing to gloss over that yes and the, before yeah. the internet you know and before not just the internet but before, before constant quote discourse <laughs> and dialogue there just just weren't and this is hard for some people to remember because maybe they didn't even see it in the first place but like the way that she addressed these things and the honesty and sort of brashness with which she addressed these things was probably responsible for saving some lives in that it 
put it on the table that these were things worth discussing because again the industry approach before very long ago and still in its way now just with different mechanisms was either yeah. to gloss over it or divert attention from or to pretend like you are better than you are with regard to like your hold yeah. on the issues you're dealing with those are all recipes for destruction and so she she was you know this the fact that this movie was addressing all of that in 1990 the book preceding it obviously like this was an advanced conversation to be having mm -hmm. decades before we were having advanced conversations about these things in our personal lives yeah and it's beautiful i very i really i owe her a mm. lot in that way and i really appreciate it i also was thinking the other day when i was watching this for the 897th time <laughs> it's a movie about surviving and except for of course mary wicks and conrad bain mm -hmm. everyone is still alive gene hackman is 90 shirley's 89 you know not that age necessarily i don't know if you knew this but you can die at any age but um <laughs> they're all they're all still hanging in there, you know, yeah. and except for Gene, who's someone recently posted a picture of him coming to some like yeah. community theater production in Arizona or New Mexico where he's retired. Yeah. He's like 93. Yeah. Yeah. And he's just like li loving life. And he looks so happy now. And not the scary Gene Hackman we know <laughs> from Poseidon Adventure and this and every every Gene Hackman role, you know. Mm hmm. Sam, as a person who, again, has been obsessed with this movie for a long time and then made the videos and then did the stage show, what have you found in people who gravitate towards towards that stuff, towards the videos and towards going to the show? Have you heard any reasons or had conversations with people about why this movie resonates with them? I think... The people haven't used these exact exact words. The people that have responded to it and freaked out about it, a couple of those videos went kind of viral. And other than people like liking drag and lip syncing, because I lip sync, they're lip sync videos, and um, it was extremely difficult to do, way more than I thought it would be. I think mm -hmm. what resonates with people, whether they voice it or not, is the the charade and the facade of show business and what's behind it, other than just the diva worship of Meryl and Shirley and Carrie and Mike Nichols and difficult relationships with mothers and confronting alcoholism. And, you know, it's, it'd be a very difficult thing to say to your parent, I think you're an alcoholic. Mm -hmm. And gay men particularly, though I think this movie should be a much more gay, iconic film than it is, the scene on the stairs with it twirled up and you weren't wearing any underwear is huge, huge for the for lots of people, including a lot of gay guys my age, around my age, a little, a little younger or much younger. And so I don't really know. And it was it was interesting when I did kind of put it out there in the world mm -hmm. to see the response it would get, because I wasn't doing like showgirls, which I which I love, did did the revival of uh, Say by the Bell with Elizabeth Berkeley, not to drop names, but it's pretty much all I can, can do. But, you know, if you're going to drop one name, that should be the one. <laughs> Nomi Malone. Nomi, I'm alone. <laughs> she is fantastic. So, yeah, I don't really specifically know because people just kind of, uh, you know, they initially react or comment to the, the the flash and glitter mm -hmm. and the funny of it all. But I think underneath it is uh, relationships with mother, with substance abuse, with the difficult struggle of being in show business, no matter how quote unquote successful you are, just, just all that stuff. Yeah. It occurs to me from you talking about, you know, having kind of a bless your heart style family that like we're drawn to stories of show business people, partly because I think we see in the dynamics of show business, like 
a lot of the dynamics of our own lives wherever we live them. But the accessories make it easier to say, like, that's me or that's how it feels to me. Because if we have to see our own pain, we should at least see it sort of in a way that feels a little bit allegorical and has the allegory be glamorous, you know, because if you have a family that puts on a false front for people and then when it's you, the family together, you don't get any of that shine, then like that's the same thing as having, you know, a mother who's being greeted by fans. It's just that instead of, you know, fans of her movies, it's people who like the way that she can perform congeniality, however she does it. Completely. Right. And it's torture. It's torture. Like I, I know however many people who's, you know, whose parents put on just like a dynamic front out of the house and then in the house or it's like a whole different circumstance. And it creates this interesting dynamic of feeling even less seen by the child or by the, by their children, because they're like, you know, people are like, but your parents are so great. What do you mean? And you're like, ugh. I know. if only you knew. I, yeah. And I have been, told by enough people I'm sure we all have like your parents are great your mom's so nice your dad's so great like you should try harder to get along with them and it's just like and the idea that like someone who is not in your family could know more about how it works than you is like don't do that just don't do that yeah yeah, completely and I I had both of these experiences with my parents in my little small town and I have seminal still to this day like shuddering sort of experiences with my mother where company came over to visit or for an ice cream social or whatever that we lived in this big old state basically called Mill Meadow and people Mm -hmm. driving down back away from us down our driveway to go home and us waving from the front porch and be smiling and laughing and me thinking I had a great time and then my mother immediately putting her hand down when they're out of sight going how dare you do that I cannot believe you said that to your aunt Joe like and you're like what exactly Things seem like the person who I whose life I destroyed by saying that didn't seem to mind or else I would know what the thing I said was (laughs) completely explain the rules to me because I keep changing. (laughs) Explain the rules to me should be the name of this podcast (laughs) (laughs) because I don't get it. I also I also realized this was in my soul, but not in my head yet about this movie. I come from West Virginia, which is mm. very similar to the Mary Wicks character who Carrie Fisher's mm. real life grandmother was like that. She mm-hmm. was from Texas, which is where Debbie Reynolds was from. And it's that thing of like any kind of success or any kind of, not my family necessarily, but just people in the town. And just, there was this, sorry, my home County, this redneck hillbilly stuff of like anything you do. That's like remotely like, educated or smart it's like you're getting too big for your britches or like this one's getting too uppity and like oh you know you think you're better than everybody else like she says I'm, she says i'm getting above myself because i use big words like like gesture and catastrophe i don't think they're so awfully big <laughs> so so we're getting very close to the daddy question the one thing that i do want to point out that just feels incredibly poetic for people who don't know about carrie fisher's life and then if we consider how these characters were inspired by her life is that Carrie Fisher died in 2017. The next day, her mother, Debbie Reynolds, said to her son, I want to see Carrie, had a stroke and then died that night. So they died within 24 hours of each other. And Carrie was cremated. Her remains, uh, her ashes, her cremains, as they're called, are kept in a novelty uh, Prozac pill. Aww. By who? I think by her daughter. Mm-hmm. 
but I love the the just the proximity of their going out feels incredibly poetic considering this is a piece of art that was inspired by their relationship and to know yeah. that sort of it was right to the end is beautiful and poetic and also a little haunting. It's like so beautiful and, and sad and sweet. And also I'm like, man, couldn't she get a little time away from her mom? Yeah. <laughs> Isn't it something you could just see it in these characters? Tap dancing her way back. Just right in. You finally get to heaven. You're like, finally some distance. I can really like establish a boundary. And then there she is. Oh, wow. Oh, my God. I can't. Oh, yeah, what, wow. what, what would she say, Sam? How would she say it? From what, 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 What's a line from this movie she would greet her with? <laughs> Maybe she just go, she just starts singing, little drops of water, little grains of sand. Oh, it just became Lynchian, and I appreciate any time that happens. <laughs> well, we know Suzanne's father is steadily slipping into a state. Mm-hmm. Who then, in your view, is the daddy? Sam, why don't you kick us off? Well, it's Lowell, the director, Gene Hackman, for me, you know, because he has that warm words of like, you know, he he takes her back in after she messes up in the movies and he shows her, you know, that she can loop and change things. And but he's always a little menacing, as Gene Hackman always was. <laughs> and also this last watch, I realized he they're so tight in the frame, like she's on top of him a little too, a little too closely for my comfort. I can't imagine someone doing that while I was looping. But yeah, he's he's my daddy um, because also the grandfather just, you know, he seems to be in a different world. Yeah. He punched me the other day when I tried to put a pair of clean pajamas on him. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, I agree. I think Lowell is the daddy like that for sure. And his talk, I could watch him give that talk several times and simultaneously be scared that he's going to yell at me and also tell me. And also worse than yelling is to tell you a truth that reveals you can be seen. That's even worse than yelling sometimes. No, yelling is the worst thing. (laughs) Yeah, I hear that. In my life, it's the I see you. That that Mm, to me is yelling. I'm like, just fucking yell at me. That's easier. Um, Aretha, I'm going to go with is the daddy in this case. I've had so many... I mean, she she's not she's a big presence in the movie. I've been through a number of things where it's just like just having a friend around to be supportive just by their presence either is lovely and very welcome or was needed and wasn't there. And I just like that. That's the presence that she plays. Like, I really appreciate that Aretha's mm-hmm. doing that extremely yeah. understated, very sardonic, very of the time feels a little bit like an extra from Heather's. And I, uh, I loved it. I loved yeah. spending time with Aretha and the hmm. rest of these folks. I mean, my daddy is Suzanne because I feel like she's a character who actually has to grow in the course of a movie. And we see a lot of kind of pseudo growth in movies, but she has to actually do it. And we get to see her, mm-hmm. you know, making bad choices and also making steadily better choices. And we get to identify with her. And I think one of the reasons that we watch movies and again, why we're drawn to to glamour is because it allows us to identify with people who are showing us things about ourselves that would otherwise be too scary to identify with. But if Meryl Streep does it, it feels a lot better. And uh, I think that this was something that she has gotten to do a lot, but especially in, you know, this and heartburn and, um, and even the Mike Nichols movie Silkwood, because again, that's her playing someone who, who she kind of communicated the truth of to audiences in a way that, 
was very out of keeping with the times. And yeah, it's well, I guess my daddy is Meryl Streep because she's the one who can kind of take you by the hand and like gently lead you into understanding yourself more deeply through her and um controversial opinion i think she's good at this acting thing <laughs> fair enough so sam thank you so much for bringing this to us i had a blast thank you where do you want people to look for you they can find me on instagram at the sam pancake t-h-e sam pancake and also if you're interested in movie podcasts i have a weird kind of niche movie podcast called Sam Pancake presents the Monday afternoon movie in which I cover either horror or teenage, um, you know, teenage wasteland movies from the 70s and 80s. Just TV movies. That's that's all. That's amazing. Well, thank you so much. I hope you uh, I hope you have a fabulous day. Oh, thank you. It's It's been a dream come true. Thank you so much for this almost painless therapy hour <laughs> <laughs> almost painless is another great name for the show i love it we're doing it <laughs> all right everybody that is it for this week's episode of you are good a feelings podcast about movies Thanks to Sam Pancake for bringing this one to us. Thanks to Miranda Zickler for editing this episode. Thanks, of course, to Carolyn Kendrick for also editing and for producing this episode. Thanks to Fresh Lash for providing the beats that make the show sound so sweet. Thanks to you, of course, for listening. Find us on Twitter for now. Find us on Instagram at YouAreGoodPod. Let us know how you're doing. Support the show on Patreon or Apple Podcast subscriptions. And I think that's it for right now. Thanks again for being here. We really appreciate you. And don't you forget it, you, my friend, are good.